Hello and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, president of Yankee Institute. And today we are delighted to be joined by Kevin Blacker, a very interesting man and an activist. And some of what we're going to be talking about today is not only fascinating, but sort of complicated. And we're just going to walk through it step by step. So Kevin, Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Sure. We're going to be talking about some stuff surrounding the state pier, which, from what I understand, is being redeveloped as a staging area for an offshore wind turbine farm. And Kevin, I know you have been very, very um, outspoken in talking about some of the more interesting government activities surrounding it. But let's start at the beginning. And... Um, how you got involved in this whole project and objecting to some of the stuff that, frankly, to my mind, sounds pretty objectionable. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, and if you all want to read more about this, check out the story in Connecticut Inside Investigator. It's a really, really in-depth investigation about Kevin's work. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is um, you're a Connecticut native and you decided to go into farming. Will you tell us a little bit about your experience farming and um, and what that was like? Yep. I grew up in Noank, which is a part of Groton. Father had a landscaping business, which I worked for my whole life. Uh, he always had had wished that he was a farmer and just for a number of reasons wasn't able to be one. So I grew up my whole life with him really liking farms and farming. And as a as a kid, you know, wanting to make your dad happy and make him proud. I think that seeded my interest. Started working on a local farm when I was 14, had an aunt and an uncle that had a farm and um, really, really love farming and tractors and uh, you know, really like working. So my dad and I got started when I was maybe 15 in a small way, you know, farming, basically setting up to, to try and cut hay. Uh, when I was around 17, we we actually started cutting hay um, through college. I went to school at the University of New Hampshire, got a degree in soil science through college. I worked, uh, you know, at farm services and a number of farms, got out of school, came back to work for my father and the family business, but then uh, really, really got into uh, some production farming them with uh, cutting hay, sale and raising beef cattle. Um, so I guess it's been about, I bought my first tractor in 2005. So I, I kind of consider that when I, when I really started and I guess we're 17 years, you know, going now. And what I thought was really fascinating um, from the piece was your observation that the money in it really wasn't from, for example, the hay itself, but the transportation of it. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there's basically no value in Hey, in, in, in the grass, it's all the money goes away if you don't handle it efficiently. It either goes away to fuel or to labor or to, you know, to fertilizer. If everything has to be handled extremely efficiently. And it's also just large volumes of physical material. It's just a tremendous amount of, of manual work that becomes overwhelming if you're not really smart in the way that you handle things and the way that you work. And if you, if you don't make investments in, in, 
uh, labor saving e- machines like uh, you know conveyors and yeah, and um, it's a lot of capital investment. I think yeah, it it is it is a lot of capital investment. Every everything with farming takes long term investments. If you're going to keep beef cattle, you have to have a fence. You have to you know, which is a tremendous amount of work. You have to have a barn. You have to have hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment to be competitive. And so let's start in 2017. The State Pure Project. This whole idea about taking the State Pier in New London and redeveloping it as a staging area for an offshore wind turbine farm. Um, That was just first making its way through the Malloy administration. And you started kind of getting a business idea, right? Tell us a little about your business idea at the time. Well, so I, I realized I wasn't making enough money cutting hay and re- raising beef cattle, that it was much too much physical work uh, to, to be sustainable on a, you know the course of a lifetime and, and expect that I was going to make enough money to buy a farm, which is, which is a goal that I've set for myself. And so I knew I needed to make more money in order to make more money. Uh, I, I had this idea, um, you know, that I could s- set up a market for rocks and boulders, which when you clear cropland around here in towns like Stonington and Ledger, the land's very rocky and you have to dig all those rocks out. It, it's expensive and they're treated basically like a byproduct, like garbage. But from mowing all the lawns along the coast, I know those rocks are useful in building breakwaters and fortifying against storms and sea level rise. And so I saw an opportunity with my communication skills and, and my logistical skills to set up a market and, and that I could create an opportunity for farmers to make money and for myself to make more money. Right. You could transport them and sort of build up these rocks as a hedge against rising sea levels, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. It would allow, you know, homeowners to protect their it's 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 and, you know, it's currently happening, you know, all along the shore. Yeah, so you get them to places like Block Island and Fisher's Island and all these different places. And so right. you, you started going to the Connecticut Port Authority, right? So so in order to be able to ship the rocks uh to places like Fisher's Island, Block Island or or coastal Connecticut, need access to a port to load them onto a barge. And so State Pier is the only deep water port in southeastern Connecticut. Uh, I found out it's under the control of the Connecticut Port Authority. So I started going to their meetings and it was just, you know, I guess coincidental that at the same time they had their big plan to exclude everybody from the port except for offshore wind and and we collided. And, you know, it was interesting because uh, that was then by that time around 2019, there everybody began to be aware of all the uh, corruption at this quasi-public Connecticut Port Authority. And all the reports came out about the grift that was going on there and that they were spending on travel and dining and that there was no oversight and that the chairwoman was spending thousands paying her daughter for the photographs being hung in her office and all kinds of whistleblower complaints. And I mean, there was just a huge scandal. So we all saw all of this kind of thing, but you just saw that as just part of the public face of a lot of other things that were going on at the uh, authority, correct? Yeah, a- absolutely. So the, the all of that stuff coming to public light, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not bragging or, or boasting. I'm, I just that what what happened was board members. I I saw something wrong. I started digging and pushing with emails, with these blast emails and, and going really aggressively after it. 
uh, board, a few board members on the Port Authority board started leaking information to me. Uh, I was able to catch the attention of David Collins of, of the day. Uh, and, and, and thereafter, Brian Scott Smith of WSHU, uh, and they really, really dug in, um, you know, and uncovered, you know, what I would call small indications of larger corruption, paying $3,000 to a daughter for artwork, uh, you know, hiring a friend for $55,000 uh, with a no bid consulting gig when anything over 50,000 required an RFP, skipping public here, you know, statute required public hearings. And I definitely believe that if, if you don't, I mean, it's simple, and it's a simple principle of integrity. If you don't do the small things right, you'll never do the big things right. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you, you know, I think that, you know, here we are, three years later, and there's an ongoing federal investigation, there's an attorney general investigation, the contracting standard board did an investigation and um, believes that the deal entered into was illegal. So I firmly believe that there are much uh, larger issues yet to be uncovered. One of the things that obviously uh, has been a huge bone of contention for you is the fact that uh, this harbor development agreement So the Connecticut Port Authority, Gateway New London, and Orsted, this this company that is now going to be taking over this wind turbine operation, it's essentially removed any other companies from using the state pier, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. The the state pier used to be a multi-use, it used to be a multi-use facility. There was a a homegrown American salt company, Driven Enterprises. There was a Longshoremen's Union, the ILA 1411 that had operated there for nearly 100 years, commercial fishermen, um, a number of local construction companies. We brought in lumber, rebar, paper, salt, steel, um, you know, and all of those uses which really supported the local economy and also the local municipalities, they were all kicked out to give the place to the competing private port of New Haven, Gateway, and uh, a company, Orsted, which is a, a former oil company owned largely by a foreign government. Yeah, the Danish company, right? Right. And then, uh, you know, the evil empire, Eversource. So it, <laughs> it just, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's some of the stuff you couldn't you couldn't make up. It was like it was out of a bad movie. The longshoremen were told if, if you want to keep your jobs, uh, you got to sign non-disclosure agreements. So they wanted to keep their jobs. So they did. Uh, you know, they had been promised some free insurance. Well, they signed the non-disclosure agreements. About three months later, they all got fired. That was the ball game that was being played down there, and it just wasn't fair, honest, or kind. Telling both sides of the story, you've been really outspoken in your opposition to this whole thing. You've been arrested a couple times, right? Absolutely, yep. And so you painted some road signs to the state pier, Temptation Pink, in honor of the little pink house, Suzanne Kilo's house, the eminent domain case that went to the Supreme Court a couple of years. Yep. Um, and and so tell us, what was your what was your purpose in doing that? Well, uh, the number one purpose was to draw attention to something that is very clearly not right. For Trumbull, the, the government wrongly took people's houses here at State Pier. They wrongly took their businesses um, and, and their port. I, I think that uh, the biggest thing I was trying to do with breaking the law, which I did at two o'clock in the afternoon, middle of the day, took my time, made sure everybody saw me, 
claimed responsibility, will pay for the signs, you know, believe that I should have been arrested, uh, you know, believe that I should face consequences. I, I wanted to set up a, a real life high stakes paradigm that when you break the law, there are consequences. There are consequences for me. There should be consequences for the Port Authority and because they have they have broken the law. And that's what principled activists do. They face the consequences. And you haven't had any problem with facing the consequences for your activism? No, I mean, sacrifice. I mean, everything everything that we enjoy as Americans is a result of sacrifice by other people. And I'm, I'm happy to make make my sacrifice of 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 time, money, or you know what, whatever else the other consequences are. Tell me where you think this goes, Kevin. It does sound like there's been a lot of procedural issues with this whole uh, Connecticut Peer Authority. The state contracting and standards board found it didn't have a statutory authority to enter into a public-private partnership, and it had gone ahead and paid a finder's fee to Seabury Capital, uh, an enterprise that counted a recent board member as one of its managing directors. You pointed that out, I guess? I was the one that, you know, I mean, that that, that found that Henry Wan, I mean, I I, I dug out that Henry Wan had, had worked for, for Seabury. It was David Collins, you know, who who verified it put his reputation on the line and reported it. And he is a reporter. David Collins of the day. Uh, he's a columnist for the yep. day. He's been the driving force in the press, um, you know, and without him, none of this would have still been in the public eye or, or really come to public light. Yep. And, this, and the state contracting and standards board found this happened. So tell us about the day that you put on your reflective vest at the state pier. Um, well, that was another, that was another day that I, you know, I, uh, you know, decided to practice civil disobedience. Uh, you know, I, I saw clearly that what they're doing is wrong. Nobody will do anything about it. none of the legislators will, will take any action. You know, I thought about it for maybe a month or so, and I decided I was going to go down, jump a fence, uh, you know, with my reflective vest on and uh, stop construction down there. So that's, that's what I did. I Went out into the middle of the two piers where they're filling 7.4 acres of uh, the Thames River. Politely told the the guy that was backing up the dump trucks that I was going to be interrupting work and I was going to be stopping work. And he, what are you doing that for? And I said, Well, this isn't right. What they're doing is not right. And I, I'm going to stop it. And you know, they stopped the trucks, stopped the bulldozers, stopped the payloader, stopped. It was probably. 15, 18, 20 trucks. And they, they sent the state police and the, the state police, they said, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm so I'm So wait, so hold on, Kevin. So, I mean, I've never actually participated in this kind of activism. So I'm curious, and I bet a lot of our listeners are. So you stood there and, and then, so that's what they do. They go, they call the state police. The state police came out and, and then what happened? Well, the, the, the state police came out and the, the trucks, there was a lot of trucks Hall and you know because they're they're four hundred thousand yards of fill they put between the two piers and all the all the water is gone now and uh, you know they were hauling and they were they were stacking up and they all were you know kind of in a line and there was a bunch of angry people and uh, the state police pulled out and um, you know they came and talked to me and asked you know what I was doing and uh, you know it was raining it was cold and. Uh, the state police said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to arrest you because that's what you want. And uh, I said, (laughs) okay. I said, oh, okay, that's fine. They said, we will call an ambulance and and have you taken to the hospital for a psychiatric 
evaluation because this this isn't normal. I said, well, if that's what you want to do, then that's that's fine. I'll I'll go to the hospital. So they they called an ambulance. You know, I was being polite, and uh, I I knew I had good reasons for what I was doing, and I'm in sound mind. So you know, the ambulance came, the police were there, and they wouldn't arrest me. They wouldn't take me to the hospital. They they drove me off of the. Uh, property and t- took me back to my truck. And, and that was that. They wrote me a ticket and told me for $92 and told me I could protest it. Nothing nothing has happened. Um, have there been any other consequences to you as a result of all, all that you've done to call attention to this situation? Consequences? Well, I've had to go to court. I mean, uh, I, I was arrested aside from Painting the signs pink back in February 2020, I was arrested at the meeting when they approved the Harbor Development Agreement. You know, I told them I was going to protest, uh, interrupted the meeting, spoke, um, and, uh, you know, refused to leave, was arrested, um, had to go to court four or five times. So, I mean, some missed work and some driving, um, you know, obviously the stress of all this doesn't doesn't bother me, but it, it seems to bother some other people that, uh you know, worry about me, you know, I mean, about, about the consequences of uh, other people seem to worry more about the consequences of uh, an arrest. I'm not worried about the impacts on my reputation, because I know in the long run, people will see I was doing what was right. But um, no, I mean, no, other than having to go to court and having a lot of people uh, really not like me, um, you know, those are the main consequences. And now, you know, uh, as we sort of draw toward the end, help us understand, Kevin, what is driving you to do this? I mean, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of stress, at least for the people around you. When you decide to go out on your own and take these actions, what is it about about this that motivates you to spend your time, to spend your energy, to protest this harbor development, this peer development? Well, that's that's what what drives me. That's that's a complex question, but I would say the biggest thing is is that it's that it's not right, and I believe that that I'm in a position that I can I, I can fix it. Uh, you know, there's of course I, I see incredible opportunity to create all sorts of opportunity for myself and and for uh, you know all the people that I love for you know for for other farmers for other people in the area for the longshoremen for driven Steve Farrelly for, you know, and I I know that I see what's happening. I understand it deeply and I'm in a position to, to be able to, to stop it. So I can't quit when I get into something, I just, I, I can't quit if I'm right. And I know I'm right. I lack the ability to, to quit. And so I'm just going to keep going. Now, you said it's not right. Tell us what you mean. It's not right. The government is not supposed to harm the people. Bribes, illegal gifts are not supposed to be given. Uh, Public, you know, statute required public hearings are not supposed to be skipped. A project is not supposed to be sold to the public as $93 million and then go to $255.5 million dollars. Uh, you, you know, there, there, sh- there shouldn't be, uh, you know, public safety shouldn't be endangered by displacing the region's uh, salt, uh, you, you know, road salt importer and, and stockpile. There, there are fundamental failures of the government and, and the government 
in this case, the Port Authority is acting in the interest of special interest and, you know, a number of private companies, not the public. And and to me, I, I just, I, I believe that that's not right. That That's un-American. Kevin, thank you for taking the time to tell us your side of the story and to tell us what you're doing. And if anyone who's listened to this podcast wants to reach out to you, is there any way for them to do so? Let's see. You could email me, kjblacker at sbcglobal.net. And, uh, you know, the biggest help that anybody could give uh, me would be to try and pass this story up up the media chain and, and get, uh, you know, the national press to, to pick up on it. Because I really believe that the increased press attention will draw the truth to light. When the truth is in the open, everybody will understand why why I won't let this go. Kevin, thank you for telling your side of the story. As they always say, sunshine is the best disinfectant. We appreciate your time today. And everyone, thank you for joining us for this edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, and we hope you'll join us next time. I'll show you around this place I call home.